From PRX, the public radio exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we catch up with one of the most well-known progressive evangelical voices in America today, Jim Wallace, founder of Sojourners and editor-in-chief of Sojourners magazine. He talks to us about his long history as a radical, his friendship with Dorothy Day and President Obama, and about his new book, America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jim Wallace. He's president and founder of Sojourners, where he's also editor-in-chief of Sojourners magazine, which is one of the most recognized and influential progressive Christian publications in the world, with a combined readership of over a quarter million people. Wallace is a New York Times bestselling author, public theologian, speaker, and international commentator on ethics and public life. He recently served on the White House Advisory Committee on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships and was former vice chair and it currently serves on the Global Agenda Council on Values of the World Economic Forum. He's the author of 11 books, most recently, Uncommon Good, How the Gospel Brings Hope to a World Divided. Jim Wallace, welcome to Things Not Seen. Great to be with you and uh, back in Chicago where we started. And speaking of that, so you got started back in the early 70s, and you helped to found an intentional community that had, that was the Sojourner community near Chicago. Well, Deerfield, Illinois, right outside Chicago, where the Bulls training camp is now. I think that's why they came there, because we were there. <laughs> and then in, in 1971, uh, the community began publishing a small newspaper called The Post-American, mm-hmm. and eventually that became Sojourner's Magazine. And so over time, the intentional community that was the Sojourners community in Deerfield, Illinois, dropped away. So, But that's where you got started. I wonder if you could bring our listeners up to date on the, tra- on the trajectory coming out of that and how that's expressed in your work in the present day. Well, we started in the early 70s. Now, uh, we were just getting started. We were in seminary. And, uh, and a funny story about that, we, we had this idea for a publication, and there was a bulletin board sign up at seminary offering students somebody's house in Lake Forest if we'd paint the house. So we all moved into the house, so they were going away for the summer. We painted it, and it was the house of Len Dressler, who was the voice of the Jolly Green Giant. And he would live in Chicago. So we did the first issue of the magazine in the house of the Jolly Green Giant. And how did he, did he ever have any reaction to that? Yeah, he he liked it. (laughs) But we started there, and... uh, we were an intentional community for many years in Chicago and many, many years in Washington, D.C. after we came in 1975. For our listeners, when you use that phrase, intentional community, what does that mean and what did that mean to, to well, you at well, the time? Well, let me tell you a little story about that. One day in Chicago, I had a call from a priest, Catholic priest, who said, Dorothy Day is in town. She's opening up a new Catholic worker house and she wants to meet you if you have time. <laughs> if I have time to meet Dorothy Day. So she was one of our heroes. And she was just kind of, you know, just finishing up her, her vocation as we were starting ours. 
So our one community car, uh, which we had, as usual, didn't work. And so I sprinted 25 blocks to make Dorothy Day. And um, I'm sitting in the parlor of a Kenmore Catholic worker house. And, and uh, while her, her autobiography, Love is the Measure, was called Love is a Measure, Dorothy wasn't ever soft and lovey-dovey. She was pretty tough. She walked in and said, so you were a radical like I was in college. I said, yeah. You were a Marxist like I was in college. I said, yeah, I was headed that way. And now you're a Catholic. I said, well, now I'm a Christian. She said, you're not a Catholic? And the lamest thing I ever said, I said, some of my best friends are Catholic. <laughs> so she called us the Protestant worker, and we got to know each other. And uh, she said, tell me what you're going to do. I said, well, we have an intentional community. What does that mean, she said, as you just asked. Well, we share all our money in common. We have a common purse. Uh, I think we were living, I think we each got $10 a month, whether we needed it or not. Uh, everything we shared commonly, we lived in households. I said, this is the future, intentional community, people sharing all the resources. This is the future of the church. We're going to live this way and raise our kids and grow old together. And I went on and she said, yeah, that's what we thought at first, too, at the Catholic Worker. It turned out to be more of a school. It told me all the people who come and gone from the Worker over many years. And I think Sojourners also has now become more of a school. It began in Chicago a long time ago, came to Washington. And we have we have 10 new interns. Uh, I had dinner with them, Joy and I and my boys, the other night. Uh, they live in a household still t- together and get a stipend. And we're now a nonprofit organization that still tries to live by the values of community. We take care of each other, and we've had several people who've gotten sick, and way way beyond sick, sick days, and we take care of them until they're better. And so we try to live as a community, but we're a nonprofit organization now, and people have their own households and live in different places in the city and go to different churches. But we try to live together still as a sojourners, which is a nonprofit organization, faith-based, which tries to live by our same values of community. Now, is the inspiration for that sort of Acts 4 and 5, where there was a common person? Oh, yeah. and, and have you gotten pushback against that? Is, is that difficult to try and maintain that kind of lifestyle in, in present-day America? Oh, it's very difficult, sure. Uh, to share all your resources in common is a very difficult thing. Uh, and, and it's harder and harder when you're serving kids and families and different, different situations and, and needs. But the spirit of it, is I think, uh, you know, we followed, you might say, uh, that text literally. We literally shared all our, as I think they did in the, in the beginning of Acts, but, but, but we shared all our, all our resources literally. Uh, and we still do an awful lot. Like, I, you know, every dime I make from speaking goes back to sojourners because that's, that's our mission and our work. And and we try, and then that's true for anybody who does any speaking here. But I think people of faith sharing their resources with each other and with the poor, I think that's still, and we heard Pope Francis calling for that just a few weeks ago here in this country. So that still is what the gospel calls us to. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Jim Wallace. He's the founder of Sojourners Magazine, and internationally he's recognized as a commentator on ethics and public life. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. 
Well, Dorothy Day called you a radical, and others have described you as a political activist. And in your editorial writing for Sojourners, you definitely have taken strong stances. I, I also have read that you've been arrested more than a couple dozen times for various political causes and social causes. So for our listeners, can you articulate for us what you see as the relationship between what we might call committed belief and social justice or the social gospel? Well, in Jesus' first sermon, his first mission statement, it was in Nazareth, I call his Nazareth Manifesto, where he said, quoted Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And the word good news there is evangel, from which we get the word evangelical. So that's what evangelical is supposed to mean. Our Gospels can change lives, they can overcome addictions, they can turn people around, save marriages, all that's wonderful. It's a blessing, but if our gospel isn't good news to poor people, it isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my conversion text, I got kicked out of my home church as a 14, 15-year-old kid over the issue of race when they said to me, Jim, you have to understand, Christianity has nothing to do with race. That's political. Our faith is personal. And so I left that night, I think, in my head and my heart. Because uh, I didn't have words to go around that then, but I do now. God is personal, but never private. And so this gospel has a public meaning. So the rest of my life, when I came back to faith, because of Matthew 25, where I've, I've never read anything as radical as that. Here's the Son of, Son of Man, Son of God, sitting in judgment on those who all believe are his followers. And he says, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked. I was sick, I was a stranger, I was in prison, and you never came to me. They said, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and naked, sick in prison? A stranger, he says, as you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. I never read anything as radical as that in Che Guevara, Karl Marx, and Ho Chi Minh when I was in college. This is very radical, and so I signed up. And to me, Matthew 25 is the vocational text uh, for sojourners, uh, how we treat the least of these is the measure of a church and of a society. A moment ago, you quoted Matthew 25 and the the text on the least of these and how Jesus relates to us as the least of these. And you used a phrase that I want to come back to. You said that that God relates to us in a way that is personal but not private. And I wonder if you could expand for a moment on what you mean by that. Well, the gospel of the kingdom of God which uh, when I, I was, when I'd been kicked out of my church, I joined the civil rights movement, student movements of my time, that, but it wasn't satisfying, so I went back to the Gospels uh, at the end of a lot of years of organizing uh, in Michigan as a student. And, and, I, and I, I found this Gospel, which is, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And the word repent there, it means, it's metanoia in the original language. It means our word metamorphosis. It means you're going in the wrong direction, turn around, and walk in a whole new direction. And that and that's what repentance means. It doesn't mean just saying, saying you're sorry, but it means going in a different direction. It's a, what it means is if you want to participate in this new order of things called the kingdom, you've got to turn so dramatically that John would call it a, a new birth. So it's very personal. This God knows everything about us and wants a relationship with us anyway. But the purpose of that relationship is to join the kingdom, join this new order of things, this new movement of things, which means to change everything personally, spiritually, economically, socially, racially, politically. It's meant to change everything, not just our private. 
private lives, but our our personal lives, our public lives, our our relationship to our neighbor, uh, and particularly to those whom he, he calls the least of these. Now, there are going to be many Christians, and some of them will identify as evangelical and others will identify in other ways, but they're going to push back against that, and they're going to say, no, 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 the gospel is not political, it's apolitical, it should be neutral, especially because, as as the text says, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the grace of God. So when you hear that kind of pushback, what do you say to that kind of claim? Well, uh, uh, that just isn't true. The, the gospel is not neutral about the poor, just not. There's 2,000 verses in the Bible about the poor, which we discovered in seminary uh, in Chicago. And uh, and those verses are very clear. I mean, the Pope was just here and made it very clear that the gospel is good news to the poor. So it isn't neutral about the poor. isn't neutral about uh, that racial reconciliation is at the heart of the early church and Christian community. That We're not neutral about those things. It, the gospel isn't political in a partisan way, and politics tries to co-opt religion all the time. Uh, we've seen that in the religious right. We've seen that for some on the left. So I say don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. Uh, let's go deep to the gospel issues, and and justice is a central issue in the gospel. This is an integral message. It's personal, social, economic political, not in a partisan sense, but in the sense of being public, it really is. The civil rights movement, uh, those who supported the civil rights, black churches and some white, they were supporting something that had a gospel core. And those who didn't support uh, racial justice were wrong not just about politics, they were wrong about the gospel. We're speaking today with Jim Wallace. He's the editor-in-chief and founder of Sojourners, and he's the author of the new book, America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. You're listening to Things Not Seen. We'll be back in a moment. Hey there, listeners. I want to take a moment and tell you about our partner for producing this show, the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. It sounds like an old-timey name, and that's because it's an old-timey organization. They got started in 1908 doing live events here in the Chicago downtown area. In the 1920s, they went coast-to-coast on the radio, and in the 1950s, they started out as one of the first religious television programs anywhere ever. And they're still doing radio and television. In addition to co-producing this program, the Sunday Evening Club makes regular hour-long documentaries for PBS that focus on issues like violence, immigration reform, health care, and more, highlighting the good work being done by faith communities as they try to make these situations better for the people of Chicago. You can find out more about the Sunday Evening Club and watch and listen to all the programs they've been producing for more than 70 years at their website, csec.org. That's csec. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with New York Times bestselling author Jim Wallace, founder of the Sojourners Community and editor-in-chief of Sojourners Magazine. We're discussing his work and his new book, America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. Before the break, we were discussing the biblical concept of metanoia and how it relates to social justice. I had heard that in the in the Jewish understanding of the resurrection, and then this was adopted by the early Christians, that each of us would be called by name, but we would all get up at once. 
and that that it's a it's a mass effect, but it's a mass effect with with a personal naming that's involved. And am I hearing a, a similar resonance in what you're saying about about the way that you think that God is relating to us in this metanoia? Well, there's a new order that breaks in the history with Jesus, and then, then there's a new community that is meant to reflect that new order. So the church is meant to reflect what that new order is all about. So uh, it's interesting how uh, that the early church used the Galatians text in Christ. There is no, uh, you know, Jew or Gentile, uh, male or female, bond or free, as a baptismal formula in the early church. In other words, they were saying these are the most divisive uh, elements in our humanity, race, class, and gender. And this is what divides us. And in Galatians, uh, Paul is saying, we're going to overcome these divisions in Christ. We're going to over. We're deliberately overcoming those divisions. And so the baptism was saying, you're joining a community that overcomes these divisions. And we're publicly stating that. So if you want to be part of that community, you're going to join this. If you don't, that's not really what, what we're doing here. So the privatizing, my evangelical tradition in Detroit privatized the gospel. And that was wrong. Uh, the idea that racism is not a Christian issue is theologically incorrect, because it is. And it was the, the biggest thing that my evangelical tradition got wrong when I was growing up. didn't see race and racism, and I kept asking, who is this minister in the South named King? What's he up to? And they wouldn't talk about it. So it was the, something was very big and very wrong in my church, in my city, in my country. And as a 14, 15-year-old kid, I sensed that, but nobody would talk about it. So how to make faith public uh, is what we've done ever since. Sojourners is trying to take personal faith and make it public. What does it mean to take faith public? So our mission statement is we're going to articulate the biblical call uh, to social justice and put faith into action. Because, as James says, faith without works is dead. Well, let's let's pick up on that thread, because in your, in your recent book, Uncommon Good, you write that both Republicans and Democrats have a religion problem, and it has nothing to do with same-sex marriage or abortion or religious liberty. Rather, you write, their serious stumbling blocks are budgets, deficits, and debt ceiling deadlines. And you go on to claim that Christians really don't have a choice which side to be on with regard to these issues. So when you when you write things like this and you say that it's not political in a partisan way and that this is equally sort of incumbent upon Democrats and Republicans, help us to understand what that means. Because so much of our language now in terms of political religion has been polarized in that way. Well, politics is, is indeed polarized, but I've, you know, sat in rooms with Democrats and Republicans, Congress, Senate, White House, and I've, and we've said together, uh, like I remember a time we were in the White House, and uh, we were the Catholic Bishops Conference was there, the National Association of Evangelicals was there, the Salvation Army was there, Bread for the World, soldiers, many of us were there across political spectrums and people who vote different ways in elections. But we said, when you're cutting budgets and deficits, which we were in favor of fiscal responsibility, but you can't, you can't cut the poor and cut nutrition for the poor and food for the poor and allow the wealthy to retain all of their benefits and say that budgets are moral documents, we said. 
budgets are moral documents. So we want to protect the poor. And so the circle of protection which formed to do that was very politically diverse. People who vote very differently on lots of issues, but what we said together, the National Association of Evangelicals and the National Council of Churches and the Catholic bishops also said together, you can't balance the budget on the backs of the nation's most vulnerable poor people. You can't do that. So uh, also we, we said when you've got um, 11 million undocumented people in this country who can't go to the doctor, can't get legal protection, are being deported, their families are being broken up, you have the evangelical immigration table, again, very diverse. You had sojourners and focus on the family in that room and the Southern Baptists and uh, all the Hispanic evangelical organizations and saying, saying, no, welcoming the stranger means creating a safe space for those people. So I think, uh, uh, you know, you've got to challenge all sides. In my experience, you've got to challenge Democrats and Republicans uh, to defend the poor because both sides talk about the middle class much more than they talk about the poor. So it's always Christians, my sense in D.C., who are raising the issue of victims of trafficking, human trafficking, or or Darfur in the Sudan, uh, or uh, HIV malaria victims around the world, or those who are being those who are working full time already but have their food stamps cut because we're protecting tax breaks for the wealthy while cutting food stamps for the poor. That's just wrong. And so Christians on all sides of politics come together around moral issues that for us are biblical. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jim Wallace, founder of Sojourners Magazine and an internationally recognized commentator on ethics and public life. At several points in this conversation, you've referenced the Pope and Catholic bishops. My wife used to work for a Catholic news organization, and she commented to me once that any time that a marriage equality issue would come up or any time that a, quote, religious liberty, unquote, issue would come up, she would receive a fax from the United States Conference on Catholic Bishops within five minutes. But when there was a death penalty issue or, as you have said, issues about the poor, the fax machine or the, the newswire was silent. And so it seems like even though evangelicals and others sometimes come to the table in in solidarity around these issues, it also seems like they have a lot of blind spots. And I wonder why that is. Well, uh, the Pope, I think, is changing the Catholic Church's priorities. The Pope is clearly, um, he, he said in the Congress, a very powerful moment, he said, I want to, we should support life at every stage. And a number of Republicans got up to clap. And that's why I'm against the death penalty. And then they were standing up, and they didn't know whether to sit down or stand up. And Democrats stood up. The consistent ethic of life, where all of, wherever life is threatened, this is what Pope is talking about. So he's really challenging both the left and the right, if you will. Per Bernadine, who was a cardinal in Chicago, one of my, my favorite cardinals ever, Cardinal Bernadine talked about a seamless garment of life, a consistent ethic of life. I used to go to his clergy conference. I was a Protestant, token Protestant who would talk to his clergy. And I love the way he defined that. Where, wherever life is threatened, we should stand up for those who are vulnerable. And so I think there's a real independence here. We're challenging the politics of left and right and defending uh, uh, human dignity, human lives, and justice. And so that to me is, and your wife is right for a long time, 
the Catholic bishops seem to be prioritizing only a couple issues and not the other ones. I think the Pope is changing that. He's calling for a reprioritizing of the poor and vulnerable in Matthew 25 and calling for a consistency, uh, not just among Catholics, but, but among all of us. Well, let me stay with this for a minute, because as a Catholic, I can find a lot of free market Christians among my co-religionists. So, for example, as a Catholic, some of my co-religionists are very vocal members of the Acton Institute. And here in Chicago, we have the Lumen Christi Institute. And oftentimes, my experience of them is they, they seem to have the opinion that the lineage goes from Jesus to Paul to Hayek and Friedman and von Mises, the sort of Chicago school of economists. So why can we find now Christians that are so committed to economic policies that clearly result in inequality. And and once we've sort of answered that question, how would you bring a different vision of the gospel to them in a way that would be convincing to them? Well, I talk with business people uh, on a very regular basis. I go to the World Economic Forum in Davos. I've been chairing the Values Council there for years. And I remember a year and a half ago, the Pope wrote a letter to Davos and all the first night, all these CEOs are listening to a letter being read by a cardinal. And, uh, and the letter said this. It said, wealth should serve humanity and not rule it. And you could have heard a pin drop in the room. I mean, I'm talking to business people now who want to see their priorities change. And so um, the market doesn't work. Adam Smith, who wrote the Wealth of Nations with a very famous line about the invisible hand of the market. In his book prior to that, wrote a book called Moral Sentiments and said, without a moral framework, the market can't function. And, um, and without ethics, the market ends up devouring everything, including itself. And, and I think that, that's what many business people, I've met some in Chicago, who want to uh, rethink uh, their ethics and want to talk about purpose and not just profits. They want to talk about long term and not just short term. They want to talk about stakeholders and not just shareholders, including uh, customers, uh, the environment itself, and, and the poor. So I think there's a good conversation going on. Uh, but finally, we're not bound by Milton Friedman. We're bound by what the gospel says about economics. If we're Christians, if we're people of faith, then our faith has to shape, and that's what the Pope is saying, shape our notion of, of a moral economy. And the Pope has spoken a great deal to that. The Pope, I was asked by journalists, is the Pope a socialist, a capitalist? The Church is none of those things. I mean, the Church stands back from systems and holds them accountable to gospel values. And so uh, so the, the kind of unfettered capitalism that is causing great inequality, and the, the Pope speaks against that. But he would also speak, speak against, uh, uh, you know, centralized oppressive governments in, in the name of communism or socialism, crushing everybody except themselves. So we, we're not, we're, we're none, of, we're none of the above. We are, we are gospel people who hold systems accountable around us, and that's what the Pope is trying to do. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Jim Wallace. He's the founder of Sojourners Magazine, and he's an internationally recognized commentator on ethics and public life. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Now, when you met with Dorothy Day, she classified you as a radical, and that implies somebody that agitates from the outside. 
uh, an outsider who's trying to change things from that direction. You've just also said that you you uh, go to the World Economic Forum at Davos, and that sounds to me like someone who is trying to speak to an insider conversation. And so with those two in, in dynamics with one another, which in your experience now is the more effective approach? Well, I think what Dorothy meant by radical, at least what I'd mean by radical, is going back to the word radix, going to the heart of things, uh, the core of things. Uh, that's what it means to me. Radical has gotten uh, you know a, a bad name these days from people who commit violence in the name of the things they believe in. That's not what I mean. I mean going to the core, the heart, the, the root. Radix means root, going to the root of things. So that's what I mean by it. In terms of the outside and the inside, I think that's a good question. My sense is that what changes history are social movements on the outside that make a difference on the inside. The abolitionist movement and slavery, the civil rights movement, uh, all kinds of movements that, that for, for me are very formative are movements. I mean, King had a movement on the outside. But then that movement really tried to change things on the inside. And so that outside-inside dynamic is very central. And I remember uh, I knew Barack Obama back when he was a state senator in Illinois, and uh, we kept up our conversation over the years. And the first time I went to, uh, to a meeting with him in the White House after he was elected, I remember I wasn't getting through security <laughs> because there was on all the security, because I, I'd been arrested outside the White House before on the sidewalk. And the office had to call down and say, no, he's okay, he's okay. So that inside, outside, I would say this, David, I'd say it's sometimes easier to be faithful to the gospel outside than inside. The pressures on the inside are enormous to make you conform to the values on the inside. So when you're on the inside, you have to be even more careful to articulate as clearly as you can uh, what the prophetic word is, what the gospel says, because the inside's very tempting, and they want you to believe that access is the most important thing. In fact, Washington, D.C. wants to give people access and thinks that should be enough for them. But access for what? For what purpose? To what end is the question. So if we're in, if we're in the White House around the... Uh, the table with the people in the inside or Congress and Senate, we better be advocating and pushing for the poor uh, like nobody does on the inside. Uh, and yet the movement has to be based not in the inside, but on the outside. The immigration movement is a powerful movement outside of power. It's having an impact on the country. Movements around, around the poor. I, I do see a new generational shift where Christians, evangelical, Catholic, and also uh, I'm working with young Jews and Muslims and people of other faith traditions. Uh, uh, I was in Salt Lake City last week for the World Parliament of Religion, 50 religions, and the young people I find there are wanting, uh, what they're looking for is courage. They're looking for people who are actually doing what their faith tells them is true and right. And, And finally, doing things that are changing systems on behalf of the poor and vulnerable is what they're most looking for. So movements on the outside are all that can change things on the inside, and and I think that's what's been shown over the years. 
looking back at uh, a speech that Ronald Reagan gave, he called America a shining city on a hill, quoting uh, an early an early settler. And a lot of American evangelicals have picked up this narrative, and it's a narrative that kind of centralizes the United States as sort of God's chosen nation. And I'm I'm aware that though you identify as an evangelical yourself, you're, you're critical of this sort of assertion. So let me ask, theologically, historically, how do you think God relates to nations? I mean, in the Old Testament, there seems to be evidence that God engages with nations and maybe even has a favorite nation or two. But do you think that God approves of the modern arrangement of the world into nation states? And and if so, would God have a list of desirable attributes for those nation states? Well, there's a lot. There's a lot in that question. There. First of all, my wife's a Brit. Uh, one of the first women ordained in the Church of England when she came over here, and she was astonished by what we meant when we said "God bless America." God, you can call for God's blessing in all the nations, but the idea that the, that America has a special role in place. There's no other Christian nation. There's no other Christian church in the world. That thinks that, uh, that 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 America has been blessed by God. That's a particularly American phenomenon, a nationalistic one. Not there's no theological foundation at all. God holds nations. If you look up nations in the Bible, they don't come off very well. I've done that. You know, they don't come off very well. And God is critical of nations often in their defense of the poor. And He tells princes and rulers. I'm going to judge you by how you treat the poor. That's said over and over and over again. So uh, the prophetic voices in Scripture always are challenging kings and rulers and princes and challenging them on how they treat the poor. So I think there's a good consistency here in the Bible that nations are held to account by the prophets of God for how they treat the marginal and the vulnerable. In fact, the Hebrew prophets make clear that a nation's righteousness, they would say, integrity, we might say, is determined by how they treat the poorest and most vulnerable. That's how nations are judged. So in that regard, the richest, most powerful nations often don't come off very well. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jim Wallace, editor-in-chief of Sojourners Magazine and founder of the Sojourners Community. He's the author of the new book, America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. You can find out more about the book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. Each week we hear from listeners like you who write in to tell us that they love the show, and a lot of you ask us what you can do to help support us. Well, first of all, thank you for listening. The number one thing you can do to help support us is to tell your friends about the show. That word of mouth is so incredibly important. And if you listen to us through iTunes, there's a second thing you can do. They give you the means to give reviews to the show, and it would be fantastic if you took a moment to write a review for us. I hear five stars are very popular. You can also give us money. Earlier in the show, I mentioned that we work with the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. So many good things come from that partnership, but one of the best by far is that your donations are tax-deductible. You can find out more about supporting us at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, and at csec.org, the website for the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Thank you for your support, and thank you, as always, for listening. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. 
We're speaking today with Jim Wallace, a New York Times bestselling author, public theologian, speaker, and international commentator on ethics and public life. He's the author of over a dozen books, and his most recent is called America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America, released in mid-January 2016. Well, a moment ago, you said that you have known Barack Obama since he was a state senator. And in my research for this interview, I I came across several times the the claim that you are a spiritual advisor to President Barack Obama. And first of all, I just want to clarify, would you agree with that statement? Would you consider yourself a spiritual advisor to the president? No, that's a media term. The media likes to use that kind of language. We would call each other friends. We've had conversations for a long time about all these things. He listens to many people uh, inside the faith community and uh and uh you know he he i think he pays attention to what man many of us uh, care about inside the faith community and he knows we're also going to hold him accountable to the things that that we think are most important like how we treat the poor how we treat the undocumented uh what role we play in the world so oh, i have no special place no special relationship we're just friends and we've been talking over the years But that's also true of his relationship to many inside the faith community. When you say that you're going to hold him accountable, do you think that he's responsive to that accountability? I think he's tried to be. I I mean, as as I say, uh, I think people inside the halls of power, as they tell me themselves, uh, they're, they're, they're often not really listening to poor people. Poor people don't vote, generally, or have money to donate to campaigns. And K Street has all the lobby groups in town. There are few, if any, for poor people in this town. So I think part of our role is to advocate and defend the poor and vulnerable inside the places of power. And I think uh, we've done that with the White House and with the Senate and the House, Democrat and Republican both. You mentioned a a few minutes ago that you've just returned from the Parliament of World Religions, which met in Salt Lake City in October of this year. Uh, For those who've not been to this event, what is it, and what sort of takeaways were there for you this year? Well, it it meets every several years, and it's it's a gathering of religions there from about that many countries. And um, what I said to them was, there's a lot of celebration of the diversity of all the faith traditions there, which is fine. I said, but wouldn't it be even more powerful if um, all of this diversity was really focused, spiritually focused, on urgent, uh, urgent uh, common goals that come right out of our faith? For example, uh, you know, Jim Kim of the World Bank did a video, and others did too. It is now, for the first time in history, possible to end extreme poverty, as we've known it for so long in, the, in this world. In the last 25 years, we've cut extreme poverty by almost, by half, by actually more than half. And now the, the nations at the UN, just a few months ago, agreed to a common goal of cutting extreme poverty uh, out altogether, ending it by 2030. Uh, now that'd be a very powerful goal for the, the diversity of the world's religious to get behind, and people like the World Bank and UN are saying, we can't do this without the faith community. I, you know, Jim, Jim Kim once said to me directly, he said, we have the evidence, we know what works now. We don't have the moral authority and don't have the constituency, and that's what the faith community can provide us. And so to me, the power of the faith community coming together around 
uh, as the Pope is saying to us, uh, around uh, ending extreme poverty. Uh, these issues are critical now. So our diversity is one thing, but focusing that diversity on some clear moral commitments that come right from our faith tr- traditions, that's the power and the possibility of something like the Parliament of World Religions. A lot of your early political activism was in the context, as you've mentioned, of the American Civil Rights Movement. And in the last two years, we've seen an awakening of political conscience and consciousness around particularly the treatment of African-American persons by the police in a number of communities. So let me ask a question that was asked in the recent Democratic debate. Do black lives matter or do all lives matter? And what is at stake in the way that we answer that question? Well, I have just uh, finished uh, a book. I've been really waiting my whole life to write, and the timing seemed right now. It's called America's Original Sin, uh, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. It comes out in the middle of January, and it's saying that, that this original sin of racism, which must be named as a sin, is is lingering still, uh, particularly in our criminal justice system. And these shootings have become really parables for the nation to learn from. Uh, I'm a Little League baseball coach. All the black kids on my teams have dads and moms who have the talk with them, how to behave and not behave in the presence of a policeman with a gun. None of the white kids' parents have that talk. Why don't the white parents care about that talk that the parents of their sons and daughters' teammates have to have? If white Christians were more Christian than white, black parents would have less to fear for their children. So this is a fundamental issue that we have to confront. So that's what this I try and do in this book. Of course, all lives matter. But all the, all the data shows, all the... Department of Justice report on Ferguson, all, all the data shows in the book makes it clear that black lives matter less in the criminal justice system than white lives do. Trayvon Martin's life mattered less. Luke Wallace's life in that criminal justice system. That's just the fact that until the, the lives at the bottom matter, then all of our lives are really at stake here. And this gets back to what you were saying earlier in the conversation about how we treat the least of these, isn't it? Well, absolutely. In fact, you know, um, what does it mean? I mean, white parents got to think about uh, what does it mean to tell to tell your kids they can't trust the law enforcement system in their communities. Uh, Brian Stevenson, one of the United Nations prim- premier lawyers for the incarcerated, for the poor, the vulnerable, wrote the foreword to, to this book that I just finished. And Brian has argued before the Supreme Court five times. His team has gotten 100 people off death row. He's a deeply committed Christian, powerful lawyer. But in the essay, in the essay he wrote a foreword to my book, the first paragraph is about what happened to him one day, coming home from the office in Atlanta, pulling out outside his house, his own house in Atlanta, tired from a long day of working, put his head back to listen to some music within 10 minutes, just to finish up the music he was listening to. 10 minutes, a bang on the window of his car. Get out, get out of the effing car or I'll blow your effing head off. He's a 
premier lawyer, and he gets out of the car, and he's, please, please, don't shoot, I'm a lawyer, I, I live here in my house, it's my car. Finally, after the cop put him over, over the car and frisked him in front of all his neighbors, uh, the cop figured figured out who he was and said, well, you're lucky this time. Now, that didn't happen to me. That doesn't happen to white people who are listening here. It happened to a premier black lawyer outside his front door. That doesn't happen to white people. Now, that's got to be an issue for us, and we can't leave, leave it to our black brothers and sisters to tell the truth about racism in this country. Uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, the key inequality in our country was shown to us when nine black Christians were shot and killed in Mother Emanuel Church on a Wednesday night in a prayer meeting. Not young kids on the outside, not young men reaching for anything. They were praying in the basement of their church, and they were killed by a young white supremacist who they invited in for prayer. And and that means that in America, no black man, woman, or child is safe. Now, that's got to mean something to the rest of us. If that doesn't matter to the rest of us, something is wrong with our religion. Now, let's stay with this for a moment, because you're a, 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 a Caucasian, a white person. I'm a, I'm a white person. How do we have this conversation with the African-American community and not interpose our experience over their experience, how do we not talk over them? How do we how do we advocate without silencing those who need our advocacy? Well, the Black Lives Matter movement will be, will be led by black lives. There's no doubt about that. But white people have to tell the truth about racism and about our own white identity. And that's, that's very supportive of that movement because uh, too many white people are either in denial... Or they're saying, well, I can help with this problem, but not looking at our own white privilege. I mean, white supremacy is still a fact in our criminal justice system. It's, it's still the reason that there's all kinds of people left out and left behind in neighborhoods all over the country with certain zip codes. And white privilege is a fact of life for all of us who are white. That's got to be said by white people and not just hear it again and again by our black brothers and sisters. We have to admit our complicity in all this and say these systems have to change. Our role is not to lead black movements. Our role is to tell the truth. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Jim Wallace. He's the founder of Sojourners Magazine and an internationally recognized commentator on ethics and public life. So Sojourners is a very well-established brand in the progressive Christian community. Uh, you've got over a quarter million combined readers of your online and subscription magazine. But in many respects, it's you, Jim Wallace, who are the face of that brand. And so looking to the future, how are you and your staff thinking about the future of Sojourners post-Jim Wallace? <laughs> well, this is, a, this is a room. I'm in a, my office here today, and... And people are meeting all over the place, and I got senior staff who aren't 30 yet, and this place is full of young leaders. I've got a board meeting this week, and the chair of my board is somebody who I who was in a class of mine at Harvard many years ago. Now he's the chair of the board. He's 32, so there's all kinds of young leaders that are rising up around the country. We give voice to their voices in our platform and our media. So there's I'm very hopeful about uh, the uh, in fact i got a call a couple of days ago from 
uh, young South African leaders who I met uh, a year ago, August, and uh, they're amazing uh, new generation of leaders there. They came to our summit last June, and at that summit they met Ferguson young leaders who are also there. We connected the South Africans and the, and the Ferguson, Missouri young people, and they're now leading in South Africa this whole battle around corruption and uh, these demonstrations at universities. And guess who they're in touch with? The young people they met at our summit from Ferguson. <laughs> they're talking strategy back and forth. So I'm very hopeful about the future. My own sons are 17 and 13, and I love their values and what they're trying to do in the world. So. The, the, the world's going to be fine without Jim Wallace at some point. And a whole new generation of lead leaders is rising up. In fact, one of the central things that we do at Sojourners, and that I do, I spend a lot of time with young emerging voices and leaders to support them. So uh, if you believe in social movements, which I do, as you heard in this conversation, you've got to care about leadership and developing leadership and mentoring leadership in a big amount of my time now is doing that. Well, and you've, you've had great success in the in the print journalism world, but I, I also have heard rumors that there, are, that there are sort of new media enterprises that will be coming under the Sojourner's umbrella, and I wonder if you'd take a moment and speak a little bit about what's on the horizon. Well, we're, uh, we're, uh, we're really committed to turning uh, this book, America's Original Sin, and book tour into more than a book tour but national, regional, local conversations in places like Chicago about race and criminal justice and how we have to build a bridge to a new America. So we'll be in Chicago and lots of places with that message. But also we're going to be launching uh, with Audible. Audible is putting together a new uh, show, digital podcast, radio show. They've asked me to do on the moral, ethical values, choices beneath the headlines. And so it's going to be reaching out to a lot of people in this country who want to have a conversation about values, ethics, and the moral uh, moral commitments that ought to motivate us. So we're having conversations and commentary, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that show. As you look back over your long career, what frustrates you and what continues to give you hope? Uh, Matthew 25 was my conversion text that brought me to Christ. And I still feel that text bringing me closer and closer to Christ. And I see it bringing a whole new generation to Jesus. Uh, As you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. That's such a radical thing to say by the Son of God. And I I get converted by that text all the time. And I see that happening, and that's my great sign of hope. Frustration, I would say, when when, uh, Christians are so conformed to their culture, that their cultural values are more important than their their their, their, their gospel values. You, you shouldn't be able to predict what white Christians think by being white, mostly by being white. You shouldn't be able to predict what American Christians think by just knowing what, what Americans think. Uh, uh, you shouldn't be able to predict what middle-class Christians think by virtue of their being middle-class. Uh, being Christian should override and shape who and what we are more than our race, our class, our national identity. But that's what should shape who we are. Our Christian values, and I'd say for Jewish, Muslim, the same thing. 
So when cultural and ideological and partisan political uh, values override Christian values, that's what frustrates me. But I see a new generation saying, we want to be Christians or Jews or Muslims first and not, and not let the politics make us something else. Well, Jim Wallace, I'm so inspired by your long career, and I'm so thankful that you took the time to speak to us today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. Anything that brings me back to Chicago, I'm for. <laughs> so great to be with you, too. Jim Wallace is the president and founder of Sojourners, where he is the editor-in-chief of Sojourners magazine, which has a combined print and electronic media readership of more than a quarter million people. He's a New York Times bestselling author, public theologian, speaker, and international commentator on ethics and public life. His new book is America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. It's being released in mid-January in 2016. He's the author of a dozen other books, including God's Politics, Why the Right Gets It Wrong and the Left Doesn't Get It. He spoke to us from the Sojourner's offices in Washington, D.C. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place in the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Colin Ashmead Bobbitt engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.